Tim was a businessman, and his wife, Sarah, was alongside him every step of the way. Now, she didn't actually work with him in business, but she was his biggest supporter. She listened to him. She encouraged him whether times were good or times were bad. And at key moments in the unfolding path of his career, she offered vital, life-changing advice. And finally, after 25 years of hard work, Tim arrives at the pinnacle of success. He owns his own company, and he's pulling down a very healthy six-figure income. Life is good. He's satisfied. He's proud. He and Sarah decide to reward themselves by taking a vacation, and they decide to visit some of the national parks. So they load up their Mercedes-Benz sedan, and they head off on a three-week driving trip. And along the way, they happen to pass by the town where Sarah grew up. Now, Sarah hasn't been back there in many, many years, so Tim pulls in to get some gas and to give Sarah a chance to see her old town. And while the attendant is filling the tank, Tim goes in to buy a cup of coffee. And when he comes out, he finds Sarah talking with the attendant. And it turns out they went to high school together. And in fact, they had been boyfriend-girlfriend. And in fact, at one point, they'd had an intensely serious relationship, so serious that they had even talked about the possibility of marriage before Sarah moved away. So Sarah introduces Tim to the old boyfriend, and they chat for a few minutes, and then Tim and Sarah get back in their car and head off on the rest of their trip. So they drive down the road in silence for quite a while. And then Tim says... I know what you're thinking. You're thinking how lucky it was that you married me. A man who achieved such great success in business. Otherwise, you would just be the wife of a gas station attendant. Sarah says, well, actually, that's, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking that if I married him, then he'd be a successful businessman and you'd be a gas station attendant. <laughs> what a wonderfully healthy conversation between a husband and wife. Sadly, there wasn't much building up there, just some tearing down. You know, it seems to me that if Tim wanted to talk about Sarah's former boyfriend, he, he could have done so in a gracious way. Instead, what he said was hurtful and demeaning and full of pride. And I think we all can understand why Sarah responded the way that she did. When we're on the receiving end of a snarky comment that wounds us, it's tempting to want to reply in kind. Yet, she could have chosen to respond with grace. Instead, she too made a comment full of pride. You see, Tim and Sarah both yielded to pride, and this is so easy to do because pride crops up in all kinds of ways in your life and in mine, and in all kinds of times and in all kinds of circumstances. The fact is none of us is immune to pride because it is deep-seated in our human DNA. In fact, pride is the original sin of mankind. 
And we learn that from the book of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were rebellious because they wanted to be like God. That's pride. Then when God called them to account, they each pointed the finger of blame elsewhere. They refused to acknowledge their fault because of shame. And what is shame except wounded pride? Didn't stop there. Adam and Eve passed the problem of pride onto their children. Many years later, their son Cain murdered his brother Abel, and he murdered him because of jealousy. And what is jealousy? But yet another form of wounded pride. And we see pride trace its way through Scripture, and it shows up repeatedly in our lives. And we can become prideful about our position, our possessions, our knowledge, our income, the neighborhood we live in, the car we drive, our accomplishments, or our education. And pride can seep into the church. We can be prideful about our Bible knowledge, about our ability to pray or to teach. We can be prideful about our financial giving or our musical ability. And the fact is anything and everything has the potential to be corrupted by pride. And wherever we let pride creep into our behavior, it always affects our relationships in an adverse way. Pride never builds up. It always tears down. And for these reasons, it's no surprise that the Bible continually addresses the issue of pride. And we need to understand that pride is not just another sin. It is the master sin. It is the core problem for humanity. And virtually all other problems in life are rooted in some way in pride. And that's why King Solomon, writing with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, highlights the insidious nature of pride. Here's what he says in the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 16 to 19. King Solomon writes, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So this list begins with haughty eyes, which simply means looking down on other people. And that is the essence of pride. And I don't believe it's any accident that pride tops this list because pride affects and infects and gives birth to all of the other problems that are listed here. For example, why do we lie We lie to cover up mistakes and problems. And we also lie to embellish our accomplishments. You see, the goal of every lie is to make ourselves look better than we otherwise would. And that's pride. If we engage in what King Solomon calls wicked schemes or evil acts, or if we even go so far as to commit murder, we're making it clear 
We're making it clear that we value ourselves and our lives more than we value others. We're making it clear that our agenda, our priorities, our wishes, our desires, they come first even if we hurt someone else along the way. That's prideful behavior. And how about if we stir up conflict within the community of faith? What drives us at times to create division and dissension between believers? It's when we have an agenda and we need to win. And we have this need to be right. And so we pursue our agenda without considering how other people might be harmed by what we do. So once again, Solomon is describing a behavior that is rooted in and grows out of pride. And this is why pride is so insidious. It can permeate our attitudes and our actions and our thoughts and our conversations, and it can give birth to an incredible array of destructive behaviors. And the sad fact is, all of us at times yield to pride. And what's really sad is we know that such behavior is wrong. We know it's harmful to us and to others, yet we do it anyway. I remember once telling a lie to my, one of my college professors about an assignment. And I had this very weird experience where as I was listening to the dishonest words come out of my mouth, my mind was saying, shut up, shut up, stop, it's ungodly, don't do it. And I kept forging ahead. You ever found yourself in that kind of situation? Why do we keep on when we know that it's wrong? I did it because I wanted to make myself look good. That's why I intentionally engaged in a lie. But guess what? Later on when my professor found out, I didn't look so good. He no longer trusted me to tell him the truth. Because pride in ways both big and small always damages relationships. That's why King Solomon tells us here that God hates pride and he hates the behaviors that pride spawns. And we need to explore this for just a minute because this idea of God expressing hate sometimes is hard for people to understand. I've often been asked, if God is love, as the Bible says, then how is it possible for God to hate? It's a common question, but I think it misunderstands the nature of love. God loves us as a heavenly father, and he wants the best for us. He wants to, us to experience completeness and wholeness, and he wants us to have a rich and full life and truly experience the very best that he has for us. And the problem with sin is that it does not promote wholeness. It promotes brokenness. Sin hurts us and it hurts others. Sin separates us from God. And so God hates sin. And he's always trying to rescue you and me from the effects of sin. And he does that because he loves us. I think if you're a parent, you can understand this. Let's suppose you have a son who becomes a heavy drug user. As you watch your son descend into a life of addiction, 
you would hate the grip that drugs have on him. You would hate the destruction that you see drugs doing to his mind and his heart and his soul and his life. And you would hate what you see precisely because you love your son. That's the way that God looks at us whenever he sees us choose to engage in sinful activity. He hates the things that we choose to do which keep us from the richness of life he wants us to enjoy. And based on this list provided for us by God through King Solomon, we can be certain that what God hates is what pride does to me and to you and to our relationships. By the way, this is a list of sins that God hates. What sins do you hate? Which sins do you like to rail against and complain about? You know, a few generations ago, one of the worst things you could do in some churches was to be caught dancing or playing cards. I find it interesting that those behaviors aren't aren't here on God's top seven list. But many churches put it at the top of the list. Today, many people view sexual sins as the absolute worst. We can't ignore them. But sexual sins were a major issue in Solomon's day, just like ours, and yet God did not have him specifically list them here. You see, I think God's telling us that more than anything, he wants us to look at ourselves so we can all learn to conquer our pride. And the fact is, when we yield to the Holy Spirit and stop letting pride drive our behavior, that's when so many other parts of life begin to fall into place. Pride is the root of so much that is bad and wrong and destructive. And if we can trust God to remove that root from our life, we will be so much healthier, individual, and as a community of faith. Now, now I think we need to be clear that not all forms of pride are necessarily bad, particularly in the way that we use that word in our culture. We sometimes use the word pride to describe our sense of satisfaction at a job well done. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good about doing something well, to have acted responsibly, to take our God-given abilities and use them in an appropriate way. And if we might say to ourselves, you know, I feel, feel kind of proud of what I've done. I think that's okay. We morph, though, into destructive pride if we then boast about what we've done. Or if we look down on others who don't do what we've done. A parent might say to a child who accomplishes something significant, you know, I'm really proud of you. I think that's fine as a word of encouragement. We move into destructive pride, though, if we then brag about our kids, or if we teach our kids to be boastful about their accomplishments, or we, we somehow model to them or train them that they should look down on others of lesser ability. Because pride can be so destructive. And that's what God wants to move you and me away from. And fortunately, God has an antidote to pride, and it's called humility. And where pride is insidious, humility is transforming. Where pride destroys, humility builds up. 
And that's why God asks his children to relentlessly pursue humility, to make humility in life a top priority. We find that in many Bible passages. One of my favorites is in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. And I'd like us to read that Bible passage together. Please join me. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? This is our theme Bible verse for this year. And we printed it on a banner that's hanging out in the lobby. And we've done that to remind us of our universal need to pursue humility so that we can defeat our universal tendency toward pride. Now, I talked about this passage from Micah at some length last Sunday. And if you weren't able to be here, I want to encourage you to go to the church website and listen to the message because it it sets the foundation for a lot of what we're going to explore together this year. Pride is our core problem. And humility is the core characteristic that God wants to develop in us so we can overcome pride. Now, I find that as people look at this verse here in Micah, and they see justice, mercy, and humility listed, they might, might react to that as if these are three distinct qualities. Well, they're distinct, and yet they're not distinct. They're closely related. Remember, in that earlier list we looked at in Proverbs, that list of sins, we could see how pride was the influence behind a wide range of behaviors. And the same thing is true with humility. And while pride gives birth to actions that harm relationships, humility gives birth to actions that heal and restore and strengthen relationships. Healing, restorative actions like justice and mercy. In order to act justly, in order to love mercy, then we're, we're having to think about other people more than we think about ourselves. We can't do that if we're full of pride. Justice and mercy flow naturally out of our lives when we make the choice to walk humbly with our God. How, though, do we actually put this into practice? How can you and I embrace a life of humility that defeats pride and that promotes justice and mercy? Later this year, we'll talk about what this looks like within our society and within our culture. This morning, though, I want us to focus on our relationships because that's where we lay the foundation. And relationships are where pride so often trips us up. And it's in our relationships where we can begin to learn about and experience the transforming power of humility. Let me give you an example. I've been married for 40 years. I have three grown kids. And I've lost count of the number of times I've had to humble myself and apologize to one of my family members. I've had to apologize for actions and attitudes that were prideful and self-centered. I've had to apologize for things I've said and done that were hurtful or demeaning to them. And we probably don't think about it this way, but when we acknowledge a wrong, a legitimate wrong, And when we apologize to the person who we have wronged, we're acting justly because it's the right thing to do. 
So justice can be as simple and as powerful as an apology for the hurt that we've caused another person. Whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. And yet we can't do what's right. We can't do what's just if we remain stuck in our pride. Apologizing becomes so much easier when we make the choice to walk humbly with God because the closer we walk with God, the more he helps us to keep our lives in proper perspective so that we don't think too highly of ourselves. When we make the choice to follow Jesus as our role model, we learn to live with humility before the Father just as he did. And as we live with humility before God, then God continually transforms us. And he transforms our relationships. Because humility before God gives birth to actions that are just. Actions that are right. Actions that heal and strengthen relationships. In the same way, loving mercy also can transform relationships. Think about this. We've all been in this situation where someone has done us wrong. They have legitimately wounded us by their inappropriate behavior. And here's what often happens. Since they were the one that did the wrong action, our sense of justice says they should initiate the process of reconciliation. It's up to them to move first because we didn't do anything wrong. And so oftentimes we wait for them to act while we continue to nurse the hurt. That doesn't do much good. But you see, if we love mercy, we don't have to wait for them to act. We can act first. We can initiate a conversation and make it clear that our forgiveness is available because more than anything, we want to heal the relationship. Loving mercy means we place a greater priority on being restored than on being right. And yet, we won't extend mercy. We won't love mercy if we remain stuck in our pride. And so once again, it leads back to this idea of walking humbly with God. And as we learn to do that, as we embrace God and he embraces us, then our pride will continually dissipate and our love of mercy will grow. God wants to drive pride out of your life and mine. Because pride always impairs relationships. And humility heals and restores and strengthens relationships. As a way to wrap this up, I want to go back to the beginning. To Tim and Sarah who exchanged prideful barbs with each other. And they'd like us to consider how they could have handled that conversation differently. You know, as they drove away from that gas station where they'd met Sarah's old boyfriend, it seems to me that it'd be natural for Tim to have some curiosity and to want to know more. And he could have initiated a conversation by saying something like this. Sarah, I didn't know that you had such a serious relationship before we met. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. And I'd like to know how I got so lucky that you chose me to be your husband. That would have been much more gracious, much more humble than the prideful way in which he actually spoke 
And how about Sarah? When Tim issued his prideful boast, a a boast that also was a put-down of her and her former boyfriend, she did not have to respond in kind. She could have said something like this, Tim, I didn't marry you because I thought that one day we would be rich. I married you because I love you. That would have been more gracious, more humble, more merciful than the prideful way she actually spoke. So often we are oblivious to the pride that emerges in our attitudes and our actions and our words. It comes so easily to the surface and it impairs relationships. And that's why we need to walk humbly with God and get close to him so we can be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and catch ourselves before we say and do things that are so damaging to the people God puts into our lives. And the more that we listen to God, the more he will show us that there's always a better way than the way of pride. It's the way of humility. So I believe these Bible passages prompt us to ask a vital question. In those areas of life where pride is rearing its head, how can you and I yield to the Holy Spirit and learn to walk more humbly with God? You know, if we offer that as a prayer, that's a prayer God would love to answer. He will answer that one. He will show us where we're full of pride. And he'll help us learn to lay it aside so we can pursue a life of humility. This humility that transforms us and transforms our relationships. The humility that transforms us from prideful, self-seeking people and molds us into faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That can happen, that will happen, as you and I make the daily choice to walk humbly with our God.